0: <clears throat> it's great to be in the house of the Lord. I'm excited about today. One of my favorite classes at U of L, believe it or not, was actually my art history class. Uh, I love learning about the different eras, the different genres of art, and I especially love learning about the artists behind the masterpieces. Different eras are known for their particular movements and styles. The frescoes of the Sistine Chapel in Rome continue to capture the imagination of art and history lovers across the world. The chapel ceilings painted by Michelangelo between the years 1508 and 1512 remain a cornerstone work of the High Renaissance and are among the most famous works of Western art ever created. The Sistine Chapel frescoes have undergone numerous restorations over the centuries and the findings of a 1979 Uh, investigation were that the entire interior of the chapel but especially the ceiling was covered with grime and wax and soot from years of candle smoke Uh, even before michelangelo's work of 1508 research showed that the building had become unstable and had already shifted considerably leaving cracks in the ceiling the investigation showed that continued water In salt damage from over the centuries caused the surface of the frescoes to actually bubble and lift from the plaster. Now, the process involved research into previous restoration methods, physical upgrades to the plaster, and the most delicate part of all, cleaning and retouching the frescoes themselves. In short, the restoration project was a massive undertaking costing $4.2 million and spanning 14 years from 1980 to 1994. Sometimes it takes an incredible effort to restore an image that was lost. For the last couple of months, God has been speaking to me about the doctrine of the image of God. And I've been listening to podcasts and reading articles and books and commentaries, trying to learn everything that I can about the image of God. Every day we see the devastating results of what happens when we reject the truth that every person is made in the image of God. Listen, we're dealing with some big issues. We see it in the radical new attitudes and policies related to abortion. We see it in the rhetoric towards refugees and immigrants. And we see it in the face of horrific accounts of sexual assault and abuse. And we need to ask the hard questions of why. And we need to move beyond the pat answers that it's because of the fall or because of sin in some general sense. I submit to you that the reason we see such brokenness is a failure to see ourselves and others as made in the image of God. We all know it's not supposed to be this way. And we have to be careful not to be overwhelmed by the sheer volume of the brokenness and evil that we see in the news and in our social media feeds. Now, As I prepare for this message, I ask the Lord, what is it going to take for us to turn the tide in a culture that is rapidly becoming post-Christian? What is it going to take, Lord, to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? I feel like the Lord actually helped me change that question and and ask, Lord, what is it going to take for you to turn the tide inside of me? See, the change we want to see out there, it's got to start in here, in our hearts. Our theme this year is organic, which we've defined as shared life, rooted in Jesus and connected to each other. And having a renewed understanding of the image of God, I believe, will help us cooperate with what God wants to do in New Life Church this year and through New Life Church. The title of the message today is Your Majesty, and it actually has, has a dual meaning. Historically, the term Your Majesty was used... When you were in the presence of a monarch to acknowledge their greatness, as in your majesty. But uh, today, so today we are coming today to address the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And there is an awe and there is a rightly understood sense of the fear of the Lord that we should all have. But your majesty also refers to the royal significance that God bestows on every person created in his image. Your majesty is both transcendent and personal. Now, let's set the stage by answering an important question. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, let's go to the first mention of that in the Bible, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in ancient Near Eastern culture, it was common for kings to construct statues of themselves and scatter them throughout their realm. And, and it was, the purpose was to remind the people, lest, you, lest they forget that there's still a king who's ruling. These images of the king represented the king's rule and authority, even though he wasn't physically present. One of the most shocking claims of Genesis 1 is that God is multiplying his image and therefore his authority to rule and to reign through every person created. It's not just about a statue. It's about multiplying across the earth. The image of God is tied directly to our role to rule and to steward God's creation on his behalf. Just as we discovered the original hidden beauty in Michelangelo's frescoes that was obscured by centuries of dirt and grime, my hope today is that we can discover the original beauty and purpose that God had in mind for every human being. Big idea for this message is we are glorious beings because we are made in the image of God. Before we dive into our main text of Psalm 8 this morning, let me give you some of the literary context. The Psalms get their name from the Greek word psalmos, which means song. Uh, The Hebrew name for the book is Tehillim, which means praises, which points to the fact that many of the Psalms were songs of praise and worship to God. The Psalms have been a favorite for Christians for centuries because they express a a wide variety of motions that I think we can all identify with. The introduction to the Psalms in my Bible calls them 150 poems that are the heart cries of God's covenant people. Now, Psalm 8 comes after five Psalms that are thick with cries of lament and pleas for deliverance. And Psalm 8 bursts onto the scene like a breath of fresh air, startling in its beauty, in its adoration, and in its worship. And that's the tone I want to set today. Yes, there are challenges in life, some of them severe. But we serve a faithful and a majestic God who's worthy of our praise. So as we go to the text today, let's have a spirit of expectation, a spirit of excitement. Enjoy the word of God with me. Let's go to Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I ponder your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place? What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Today, there are three things that I want you to see from Psalm 8. The first is God cares for us. God cares for us. Now, in the first four verses, the psalmist David uses an interesting form of contrast. In verse 1 and 3, there's both a recognition and a declaration of the royal attributes of God. His name is described as majestic, which can also be translated as mighty, mighty in his victories, mighty in his judgment, mighty in his rule over all creation. David remarks about the glory or magn- David's remarks about the glory or magnificence of God, uh, he he, he states that it surpasses the sky into the stars. The psalmist clearly understands that he is addressing the creator and the king of the universe. We've all probably been in situations where we realize how big God is and just how small we are. Years ago, I visited a friend in Durango, Colorado, and he happened to live in a mountain Uh, in a cabin on the side of a mountain, way, way up. And one night, as we were hanging out, I went outside to uh, get something out of his Jeep. And as I walked outside, my breath was literally taken away. Uh, I, I saw what seemed like a multitude of thousands of stars from one end of the sky to the other. And it felt like at that moment I was so close I could just reach up and pluck them from the sky. Overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed. How could you not be? I just fell down on my knees and I worshiped. And I praised God for who he is, for his character, for his goodness, for his power, for his love. The psalmist is making the point that there is an inexpressible distance between the supreme creative power of God and the frail, dependent, immortal humans. As a psalmist ponders the amazing display of God's power, he then shifts to ask, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you even care for him? Now, the words mindful and care for have a deeper meaning that's closer to uh, a remembering that causes a a longing. So take a moment and think about someone in your life, someone that you love dearly, a parent, sibling, a friend, maybe a child that lives in another part of the country or another part of the world. And in that moment, it feels as if hundreds, maybe thousands of miles are removed. Maybe you could be, you begin to feel a longing to spend time with them, to care for them. And that's the picture that the psalmist is poetically paying for us. He's literally amazed at the thoughtful and loving care of an infinite God for a finite human. Now, in these verses, the psalmist also uses the most vulnerable and dependent of all humans, children and infants, to make a powerful point. God not only cares and provides for these little ones, the text says that he ordains praise. And some translations say he ordains strength to silence his foes and his enemies. As always, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And during his triumphal entry to uh, Jerusalem, Jesus himself quotes Psalm 8 in Matthew 21, 15 and 16. It says, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Two weeks ago, I was honored to be able to say the opening prayer and just share a few remarks at the annual Right to Life rally uh, downtown at the courthouse. It actually happened to be the 46th anniversary of the tragic Roe versus Wade decision that legalized abortion, one of the things I uh, uh, research is that recent statistics indicate that there's actually progress to be celebrated. The most recent data reports that uh, abortions per year, the abortion rate, and the number of facilities in the U.S. that perform abortions are all at historic lows. We should praise God for that. <clears throat> Ironically, though, later that day, the New York state legislature passed a law that expanded late-term abortion up to the point of birth. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo later released a statement saying, I am directing that New York's landmarks be lit in pink to celebrate this achievement and shine a bright light forward for the rest of the nation to follow. Indeed, other states are considering legislation that would lift restrictions on some of the most horrific abortion procedures. Why is this happening? It's because life is no longer considered a gift. Life is no longer precious to us. Many people believe that the final hurdle to overcome in the pro-life movement is the battle of over the definition of personhood. What does it mean to be a person? In Roe versus Wade, the state of Texas argued that the fetus is a person within the language and the meaning of the 14th Amendment, to which Justice Harry Blackman responded, quote, if this suggestion of personhood is established, the appellant's case, of course, collapses, for the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the amendment. Now, abortion rights supporters acknowledge that the unborn baby is genetically and biologically human, uh, but they do not grant it personhood until sometime Later in the future, when that unborn baby has attained some some level of development. Do you see the problem with that logic? Who sets the standard? Who decides when personhood begins? The bottom line is, whoever has the most power decides who is a person. The biblical concept of personhood is rooted in the truth of human beings created in the image of God. You are not a person because you had economic value as a producer or a consumer. You are not a person because of anything that you can or will do. No, you're a person because of who you are. You are a glorious being because you have been made in the image of God. He cares for you. If God can create incredible artwork in the sky like a master painter or sculptor, certainly he can take care of your needs. If God cares for and ordains praise and strength from the littlest ones to silence his enemies, he can do the same in your life. God cares for us. Next, God crowns us, Psalm 8, 5. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, David here is echoing and expanding on us being made in the image of God from Genesis 1, First, the psalmist says that God has made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some translations say angels. Some translations say God. The point he's making is that God has chosen by his own free will and grace to bestow on us the highest honor that is possible for an earthly creature to attain. And the language continues with the the royalty theme. We've been crowned by the creator and the king of the universe. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute for some of you right now that idea is blowing your mind because for years you've heard a different narrative about what God thinks about people one commentator makes the point that many people have just a, a nagging sense that God just he's not really crazy about us but he just he just kind of tolerates us he just kind of allows us to exist this verse explodes that idea the psalmist here uses the word the Hebrew word kavod which is, trans, which is translated glory, here it literally means heavy or, or weighty. And in this context, it means uh, significant or important. This word is used 189 times in the Old Testament. Here are some examples. In, in Psalm 7, where David's praying to God about his potential wrongdoing, he says, Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory, my kavod, in the dust. Isaiah 14, 18, all the kings of the nations lie in glory, in cavode, each in his own tomb. Ezekiel 43, 5, then the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory, the cavode of the Lord filled the temple. We've been crowned with God's glory and God's honor, and we must remember who we are. Last year, the online magazine, The Talks, published an interview with the actor Jim Carrey where they asked him the question, have you ever had a spiritual epiphany? This is what he says, quote, well, I've gone through a lot of changes in the last few years and a lot of realizations, and I guess you could say awakenings about things, and everything is touched by that. Everything I'm doing creatively right now seems to point to the awareness of a lack of self. What are we? Why are we here? And the answer to both of those questions is nothing. No reason. As far as I'm concerned, there is no me. One of the most important things to settle in life is the concept of identity. Who you are, the source of your value and your worth. And if I could speak to Jim Carrey, I would say, Jim, that's a lie. You are precious in God's sight and you have been given amazing gifts to be a blessing to the world. Neil Anderson, in his great book, Victory Over the Darkness, has this quote. He says, people cannot consistently behave in ways that are inconsistent with the way they perceive themselves. What lies have gotten inside you, into your heart, into your mind? What lies have you made an agreement with? It's an important question, and your life could depend on it. Unfortunately, we live in a time where people not only agree with the lies about themselves, but they believe and then take action on those lies to a tragic end. In preparing for this message, I found some data that from 1999 to 2016, the rate of suicides in the United States increased by 30%. It's now the second leading cause of death for 10 to 34-year-olds. Can we please call this what it is? We have an epidemic of suicide in this country and this should break our hearts. This should drive us to our knees to cry out to God for him to intervene in this epidemic. This is a tragedy, and the church of Jesus Christ must not stand for this. People made in the image of God, a little lower than the the angels, who feel so hopeless, so lost that they see no other choice than to end their life. I'm tired of hearing about 10-year-old children who've been So demoralized and bullied that they come home and they commit suicide. These are precious lives. And we shouldn't stop at being heartbroken. We need to get angry about this. We come against a spirit of suicide and self-harm today. We refuse to accept this. One of the most interesting bands in recent years is 21 Pilots. They have an amazing way of treating deep and serious subjects with incredible creativity. Their most recent album, Trench, has a song that addresses how the culture has begun to glorify and celebrate the issue of suicide. Here are some lines from their song, Neon Gravestones. Could we give this some room for a new point of view? And could it be true that some could be tempted to use this mistake as a form of aggression, a form of succession, a form of a weapon, thinking, I'll teach them, Well, I'm refusing the lesson. It won't resonate in our minds. I'm not disrespecting what was left behind, just pleading that it does not get glorified. Maybe we swap out what it is that we hold so high. Find your grandparents or someone of age. Pay some respects for the path that they paved to life they were dedicated. Now that should be celebrated. In an interview about that song, the singer Tyler Joseph says, quote, "I, I think at some point we hear you and we are here for you, and we understand you, there's a point where that doesn't help. And what's the opposite of that? That's a challenge to step up and defeat something, to win. I don't know your situation or your background, but here's what I do know. I know there are people here today who have believed and internalized the lie that your life has no purpose, that you're a failure, Please hear this truth from God's word today that you have been crowned with glory and honor from the king of the universe. His image has been imprinted on you. You have kavod. You have a weighty significance about you. You matter. You have a purpose. So God cares for us. God crowns us. And last, God commissions us. Verses 6 through 9, Psalm 8, you made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the pass of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The text here is linked to the original calling we received from God in Genesis 1.0. The Bible Project podcast has a great discussion on how being made in the image of God is directly tied to our role to rule and to reign on his behalf, to represent him, and to move the creation forward. Now, the Genesis account takes place in a garden. So what does that look like in our context? One of the ways that we express the image of God is through the lives we lead. Creating, discovering, building businesses, growing families, serving the community living the biblical purpose as God's image bearers takes place out there monday through saturday and see that's why at new life at new life church we talk more about building the kingdom of god rather than just going to church or building new life church so what does it mean to rule the earth on god's behalf during the christmas holiday i had the chance to visit with a dear friend who i haven't seen in years She's like a a big sister to me in the faith, and whenever we get a chance to talk, it always comes back to and centers on what is God doing in our different context. Now, Liz was just finishing up as the national director for World Vision in Nepal, and the topic of leadership came up in our discussion. Now, She told me that Nepal has a very hierarchical structure, almost a a caste-like system, and she felt that that kept people from unlocking the freedom and joy of living out their calling. She told me how one day she radically recreated their organizational chart, and then she called a mandatory base-wide team meeting, and when the team came in, they saw on the org chart that the janitor's name was at the top, and her name, the national director, Liz's, was at the bottom. (laughs) The janitor was almost speechless at what was a scandalous demonstration of grace. What was she communicating? that ruling and reigning as a Christian is about serving. And as image bearers of God, we get the high calling and the privilege to restore the image of God in others. And I began to laugh when I understood that the kingdom of God is advancing in Nepal, just like it is here at New Life Church. You see, the world system is all about getting yours. I'm going to get mine. It's all about getting to the top climbing the ladder and getting to the top of the triangle, but in God's kingdom, it's reversed. It's the upside down triangle. In the kingdom, it's all about downward mobility. It's about giving up power. Mark ten forty five. for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Can I ask you How are you ruling and reigning? Is it about extending your kingdom or God's kingdom? Is it about gaining glory for yourself or giving God the glory? See, we all have an innate desire to be part of something that is bigger than ourselves, and that flows out of man's purpose from the very beginning of creation. We're to represent God in everything we do to rule and to reign and to bring prosperity and blessing into every situation. That's why work inherently comes with honor. In the 1960s, Memphis, like many other cities, uh, their sanitation workers worked long hours for low wages. No overtime pay, no paid sick leave, and injuries on the job could result in you getting fired. You didn't work, you didn't get paid. And most of them made right at about sixty-five cents an hour. Working conditions were, put it mildly, horrific. When workers went home, they had to stop at their door, their front porch, and pull off their clothes, where maggots would fall out under their bodies. On February first, nineteen sixty-eight, two sanitation workers, Eschel Cole and Robert Walker, took shelter from the rain in the back of their garbage truck. And as they rode in the back of the truck, an electrical switch malfunctioned, and the compactor turned on, and they were crushed to death. The Public Works Department refused to compensate their families. This sparked an outrage, which led to the Memphis sanitation workers to strike and to peacefully protest their terrible working conditions. According to James Douglas, a sanitation worker at the time, he said, we felt that we had, would have to let the city know that because we were sanitation workers, we were human beings. The signs we were carrying said, I am a man. And we were going to demand the same dignity and the same courtesy any other citizen of Memphis has. Reverend James Morris Lawson, Jr. said during that time, quote, For at the heart of racism is the idea that man is not a man. I use some of the movement's language that you were men. You are a child of God. You are somebody. The Memphis Annotation Worker Strike would win the support of civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And it would also lead to his assassination less than two months later. You see, racism at its heart is a sinful, evil, horrific attack on the image of God. When you see someone else as subhuman, then you open the door to anything and everything. We believe everyone is created in the image of God. That's why at New Life Church, one of our convictions, one of our core values is racial reconciliation. And that's what the struggle for civil rights was all about. Secular law should derive their meaning and their authority from biblical truth. Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When you work, Whatever your occupation, whether you're a corporate CEO or a sanitation worker, it is endowed with inherent dignity and honor. Every image bearer of God, regardless of race or ethnicity or nationality, has been commissioned to rule and to reign on God's behalf. One final story as we close. Over the Christmas break, I attended the funeral for one of the saints who had the earliest impact on me. Simon Sato was born on July 22, 1928, in Idaho Falls, to a Japanese immigrant pastor and his wife. During World War II, he and his family were incarcerated as enemy aliens at an internment camp in Arizona. His son Steve said, quote, instead of looking at this injustice with bitterness or resentment, he barely thought it worth mentioning. When he did talk about the internment camp, it was in the context of appreciation Because it was during this time that my dad felt convicted that God was calling him to dedicate his life to becoming a medical missionary in India. He and his wife, Yvonne, married and faithfully served in rural India uh, in medical missions as a doctor and nurse and a husband-wife team, impacting many lives, both physically and spiritually. I first met Dr. Sato, Mr. Sato, in January of 1997 on the weekend that, w- that I was actually moving to New York. Uh, and during that lunch, he and Mrs. Sato engaged me in just, just a wonderful conversation with genuine interest in who I was as a person. You see, there were no ulterior motives, no hidden agenda to get me saved. And as we were saying goodbye, Mr. Sato shook, shook my hand, looked me in the eye, And with that gentle smile, he said, God bless you. Now, it seems small, but that was an eternal moment that has impacted me the rest of my life. See, in that moment, 22 years ago, when I was lost in my sin, Mr. Sato cared for me. He crowned me. And as I only realized as I prepared for this message, he commissioned me. He was passing a spiritual baton to me. He was essentially saying, as I restored the image of God in you, you go and do the same for others. At the funeral, my friend Steve said of his father, he was always willing to become less so someone else could become more. Doesn't that sound like someone we know? We are made in the image of God, but we point to a greater reality the true Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Hebrews three says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him, you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus was shamed so we could be honored. Jesus was condemned so we could be set free. Jesus was crowned with thorns so we could be crowned with glory. Jesus tasted death so we could taste life. And look, if we're honest, we all know that we've missed the mark. We've defaced the image of God in ourselves and in others. We haven't ruled the earth or ourselves the way God intended. And that's why Jesus came. To make all things new. Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And on the the cross, he died the death that we deserve. He suffered for every evil thought, every, every evil word we've said, and every evil thing we've ever done, he gave his life as a perfect sacrifice for your sins and for mine. Just as we saw in Michelangelo's creation of Adam Fresco, where God reaches out to touch Adam and creates him in his image, Jesus is here today, here at this moment, with his arms wide open, saying, come to me. Trust me with your life, and I will restore God's image in you. I will make you new. God cares for us. God crowns us. God commissions us. We are glorious beings because we are made in the image of God.